right, well, welcome uh, to the first installment in our New Testament overview, our New Testament survey. This is sort of a continuation of the Old Testament survey that we concluded a while back. And if you'll remember uh, from that study, what we did was we looked at more or less one book each evening, uh, looking at the book, uh, its author, its historical context, uh, how it fit into the broader scope of the Old Testament canon, and particularly uh, how what it taught us about God and how it pointed us towards Christ. <clears throat> so as we begin uh, to jump into the New Testament, we're going to do much the same thing. We're going to look at more or less one book each night. Now some of the smaller letters I will group together, so probably look at 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John all together at one uh, when we did the Old Testament, you'll remember that we moved through it not in the order that the books are organized in our Bible, but in the order that they are found in the traditional Hebrew Scripture. So we looked at the law, then the prophets, and then the writings. When we come to the New Testament, we have to decide how we're going to approach it. And so there are basically uh, two choices, which would be the canonical order that we find them in our Bibles, or some sort of chronological order uh, by when they were written. We're just going to take them as they appear in our Bibles. So we're going to start in Matthew and work our way through to Revelation. There might be one or two that I move around when we get to the small letters. Uh, seems to me to make sense to maybe group Philemon together with Colossians in one night, but we'll address that when we get there. But we will more or less just move straight through from Matthew to Revelation. So as we look at each book in the New Testament, our goal will be much the same as it was in the Old Testament, uh, to consider the author of the book, the original intended audience, the primary themes and message of the book, and how it fits into the broader scope of the biblical canon. But as we begin to look at the New Testament, uh, we now have kind of the opposite task that we had in the Old. Uh, if you'll remember, as we looked at the Old Testament, we talked about the line from St. Augustine who said that the new is concealed in the old and the old is revealed in the new. So as we looked at the old, we looked for that concealment. How is the promise of the Messiah found here? How is this directing us forward toward Christ? As we look at the New Testament, Christ has come, but the New Testament is unfolding and explaining a lot of those prophecies and promises in the Old Testament. So the New Testament is going to do that work. So we're going to see themes and ideas and concepts from the Old Testament carried forward into the New Testament and see how they are fulfilled in Christ. So as we do that, we need to understand the basic storyline of the Bible which starts with the creation, obviously, in Genesis, the creation of the world, of Adam and Eve, uh, God's good creation. And then, of course, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam sins, and so we have the fall. Uh, in the wake of that fall, we have the promise of redemption, the promise of a Messiah who will come, who will right the wrongs, crush the head of the serpent, uh, and do what Adam could not, that is to perfectly obey God and to fulfill the covenant promises. So uh, that's the basic storyline, creation, fall, and redemption. We see that storyline kind of 
circulated back through multiple times in the Old Testament, don't we? We have right now in our study of Genesis on Sunday mornings, we're dealing with Noah and the flood. And so the earth is cleansed in the flood. There's sort of a new creation happening. Noah it gets the same commission that Adam originally had to populate the earth. So there's sort of new creation happening, but then Noah will sin just as Adam did. Uh, and so there's a fall again and a promise of a redeemer, uh, someone who will come in the, in the line, the daughter of, or the son of Eve who will crush the serpent's head. But obviously it's not Noah. And so that will continue uh, with Abraham and the nation of Israel, which serves as a sort of corporate uh, Adam. We have the creation of a nation that's a new creation, uh, but then we see that Israel, having been created, taken out of Egypt, referred to as God's son in multiple places, uh, we see a lot of parallels. We have Eden, we have the promised land where God will dwell with his people. So you can see the story is being recapitulated, but what happens? We know from our study of the Old Testament, Israel sins. They break the covenant just as Adam broke the covenant. What happens to them? They get expelled from the land just as Adam got exiled from the garden. So the story is repeating itself again. Uh, but at the end of the Old Testament, Israel comes back to the land. So redemption begins to happen. They're back in the land, but they are still in a sort of spiritual exile. They're ruled by foreign powers, and they're waiting for the promised Messiah. So as we move into the New Testament, we see that story happening again, but this time it's different. We have Christ, the new Adam, uh, and Christ is coming to fulfill uh, the promises of the Old Testament. And so if you'll remember from Second uh, Corinthians, Turn there real quick, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he says this, beginning in verse 15. Uh, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So we have a new creation again in Christ, the creation of a new people, the church. When the nation of Israel was created at the exodus out of Egypt, God told Moses to speak to the people in Exodus 19, verse 6, saying, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was the design for the nation of Israel. They were to be a kingdom of priests mediating the presence of God to the world. They failed in that. What are we told in the New Testament concerning the church? In Peter's letter, you are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So the church in Christ is that new creation now that is designed to fulfill that duty. So Christ, the new Adam, the new creation. Um, but in the New Testament, now we have this strange thing. Christ taking Adam's place does not fall. Adam fell, Noah fell, Israel as a nation fell. Christ does not. So the cycle 
even though it has repeated itself, has now been broken because it is being fulfilled in Christ. The redemption is actually coming to pass, but it is not entirely consummated. So we live now in this period of time that we sometimes refer to as the already, not yet. Redemption has been inaugurated, but it has not yet been fully consummated. A good analogy uh, for that is the analogy of World War II. When the Allied forces got involved in World War II and we had D-Day, that kind of sealed the deal. At the end of D-Day, it was a foregone conclusion that Nazi Germany has lost the war. But the war continued until V-Day when victory was declared and the enemy officially surrendered. It's a similar situation to what we find ourselves in. All of those promises of the Messiah and of redemption have been fulfilled. Christ has come. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And yet, the kingdom itself has not been fully realized. And so we still live in a sinful world and still deal with sin every day as we wait for the consummation of all things at the end. And so we're kind of living in the midst of that war. D-Day has happened. The victory has been won. But the enemy is not yet finally surrendered, and that will happen at Christ's return. So we live in the overlap of these ages. As we look at each book in the New Testament, then, we need to look at how it connects to the Old Testament's expectation of Christ, of the redemption that is found in him, and yet how that book also guides and directs us to live in this already not yet situation that we find ourselves in, looking forward to the final end of all things. So as we do this, we have to deal with how the New Testament relates to the Old. And one of the interesting things about that is uh, when Moses began to write the Old Testament, there was no other written revelation. As the prophets begin to write their writings, Uh, and, and the writings themselves, like the Psalms of David, they have what Moses wrote or previous revelation that had been given through the prophets, and so we see them referring to that and commenting on it. But now in the New Testament, we have the full canon of the Old Testament available to the New Testament authors, and they interact with it a lot. In fact, there are 352 verses in total in the New Testament that are direct quotations from the Old Testament, 352 verses, which is one out of every 22 verses in the New Testament. One out of every 22 verses, just under 5% of the New Testament, is direct quotations from the Old Testament. So we can see the Old Testament plays a large role in the development of the New Testament canon. In addition to those direct quotations, depending on who you follow in this, there are at least a thousand allusions and references to Old Testament texts, maybe several thousand, depending on whose count you go by, which means that 25% of the New Testament may be directly related to a particular Old Testament text. So the Old Testament has a very large role in shaping the New Testament. An example of this would be If we turn to Mark chapter 1, as Mark begins to record his uh, gospel account of the life of Christ, uh, 
he begins with these words, Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 through verse 3. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So Mark is here quoting from Isaiah 40, verse 3. And so if we were to turn back to Isaiah, beginning in chapter 40, we would see the quotation that Mark is pulling from. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then Isaiah's prophecy continues. I don't believe that Mark in quoting this passage is merely going, oh, that's a nice sounding verse in Isaiah. Let me quote that and apply it to this situation here with John the Baptist. What Mark is intending to do is to draw our attention to the larger context of Isaiah's prophecies, beginning in chapter 40 through the end of his book. Isaiah spends a lot of time talking about the servant of the Lord, the victory of God over Israel's enemies, and the restoration of the kingdom. And I think Mark intends, as we read his gospel, for us to have all of that in the background of our mind, that Christ is the fulfillment of that. He is the servant of Isaiah. He is the one who triumphs over his enemies and who restores the kingdom. And so Mark is not just quoting one little verse. He's drawing our attention to a larger context in the Old Testament. A way to think about that might be that this quotation of one verse from Isaiah is like the tip of the iceberg that we see above the water. The rest of the iceberg underwater is the rest of Isaiah it's there and it's influencing Mark's thought, even though he's not quoting it directly. So as we look at these New Testament books, there are a few uh, principles that we need to keep in mind uh, concerning how the New Testament authors thought and therefore how we ought to think as we read these books. The first thing that we need to keep in mind is as we read these quotations, in the New Testament or see these allusions and references to the Old Testament, it is quite obvious that the New Testament authors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, considered the Old Testament in its entirety to be the Word of God. So when they quote the Old Testament, it is God that is speaking. We need to come to the New Testament with that same principle in mind. The Old Testament is God's Word every bit as much as the New Testament is. When they quote the Old Testament, that is God speaking. And so we need to be aware of that. Secondly, there's a principle uh, in the Old Testament that we've spoke about multiple times and this idea of covenant headship, uh, that Adam was a covenant head for all humanity or that Moses was the covenant head of the Mosaic Covenant or that David as the king was the covenant head over the nation of Israel. And so we see that as God interacts with his nation, as the king goes, so goes the nation. 
If the king is faithful and true, the nation receives blessings. If the king is sinful and idolatrous, the nation receives curses. And so that idea of covenant headship is brought into the New Testament. Christ is the new head of the new covenant. And so we receive our blessings in him. And so as we see Paul and other New Testament authors talking about the blessings that we have in Christ, they have that idea of covenant headship in their minds, and that's why they write the way they do. The third thing is that as we read the New Testament, we need to be aware of the fact that the New Testament authors themselves, as they interacted with the prophecies and the promises from the Old Testament, firmly believed, rightly so, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that they themselves were living in the last days. And so as we read the New Testament, we don't need to think, well, when will the last days start? We know when they started. They started in the time of the apostles at Christ's ascension. And so we are in the last days just as they were. Uh, so we need to have that in our mind as we read what they wrote. Fourthly, we need to understand that all of history is part of God's design. Everything that happens is part of his design. And so it should, it's not random. And since God is in firm sovereign control over all history, and since the Holy Spirit not only inspired the writing of the Old Testament, but also the New, it should not surprise us when we see correspondence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between historical figures in the Old and figures in the New Testament. Those correspondences shouldn't come as a surprise because God was in control of all this and planned it all. And lastly, we need to understand what we have said before is that Scripture interprets Scripture, that later revelation uh, helps us to understand earlier revelation. There were things written in the Old Testament in the prophets that the human authors did not fully understand how those things would be fulfilled, but it is revealed to us in the New Testament. They understood the promise of a Messiah. They did not necessarily understand every detail of what his life and ministry would look like, but the New Testament makes that clear to us. So those are five principles we need to keep in mind. Uh, a couple other things before we actually jump into the New Testament is how the New Testament actually deals with the Old Testament text. And so as I mentioned, there are a lot of quotations uh, of the Old Testament. Uh, for instance, if we look at Matthew 27, Jesus is uh, on the cross being crucified, and we see him uh, down in verse 45, Matthew 27, verse 45, as Jesus is on the cross. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now Jesus isn't just saying that, he's quoting an Old Testament text. He's quoting from Psalm chapter 22. Again, He's not just quoting that verse because that verse in isolation fits the context. He means to draw our attention to the broader context of that verse. Psalm 22 begins this way, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy and throned in the praises of Israel. 
Our fathers trusted in you. And so the psalmist goes on, but if you, if you read the whole psalm in context, you get down to verse 9. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help me. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. Think about Christ on the cross with the crowd surrounding him, mocking him, all of that going on. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. Remember Christ on the cross said, I thirst. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So when Jesus quotes the first verse of the psalm, he intends for us to remember the whole psalm and to see that the whole psalm applies to him and to what is happening in that moment on the cross. So when the New Testament authors are quoting the Old Testament, they are often doing that, intending for us to see the broader context of the verse that they're quoting. Uh, We can see this in other passages as well. If we look at Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, or verse 14 and 15, when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed from Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Well, what that was spoken by the prophet, it was about the nation of Israel being brought out of Egypt in the Exodus, and here it's applied to Christ. And so obviously that verse is meant to bring into our mind the whole concept of the Exodus from the Old Testament, of God's formation of the nation, and that Jesus himself is the true Israel of God who is fulfilling and doing what Israel as a people could not do. So we see this throughout as the New Testament authors quote Old Testament texts, they intend the broader context to be brought to mind. As we deal with allusions, these are more difficult uh, to deal with because they're not a direct quotation, but there are a lot of allusions to the Old Testament. Uh, We will see corresponding words and phrasing, but things that are not necessarily direct quotes. If you turn to Matthew 13, Matthew 13 and look at verse 42 and 50, we see Jesus saying this, speaking of uh, the parable of the tares and the gathering in at the end of the age. Uh, He says, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And then in verse 50, he says it again, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Well, where have we heard anything about a furnace of fire before? Well, that might call to mind the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. And so we think, hmm, is there any sort of connection there uh, in the mind of Christ as he says these words? Uh, Is he considering that story in Daniel? Well, consider these connections that we see between Matthew 13 and the book of Daniel. In Matthew 13, 11, and let me flip back 
to Daniel so that I can read these as we go through. In Matthew 13, verse 11, he answered and said unto them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So the disciples have asked Jesus, Why are you speaking in these parables? And he says, Because it has been given to you to understand the mysteries, to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but it has not been given to them. Well, consider Daniel chapter 2, verse 47. Nebuchadnezzar uh, has had a dream and, and has, Daniel has now explained that dream to him. Verse 30, 46, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face prostrate before Daniel and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. And so we see that idea there that God knows these things. God understands these things and revealed them to his servant, Daniel, but not to others. Here, Jesus is saying, "This, this mysteries are being revealed to my servants, to my apostles, but not necessarily to everyone else. So there's a connection we can see in Matthew 13, verse 32. Matthew 13, verse Jesus says, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And so he's talking, it's a parable of the mustard seed, and he talks about how it grows and becomes this large tree so that the birds come and nest in its branches. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, again in chapter 4 of Daniel, has a dream. He dreams of a tree which grew and became strong. Its height reached into the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heaven dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. And so we can see a similar language being used, similar phrasing being used. This storyline of Daniel is in the background uh, here of Matthew 13. And so then in Matthew 13, 43 and 50, when he talks about the furnace of fire, if we flip and look at Daniel chapter 12, we'll remember the furnace into which Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were cast. It says... Well, one more connection first. Daniel 13, Matthew 13, 43, um, after he talks about the furnace, he says, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears let hear, let him hear. In Daniel 12, verse 3, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So again, similar language there, making these connections between Matthew 13 and Daniel. Well, then 42 and 50 in Matthew 13, when he speaks of the furnace, uh, would call to mind Daniel chapter 3 and the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in which we read in verse 6 and again in verse 11, that whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And then in verse 11, whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And so in Daniel, a pagan king is going to cast into the furnace anyone who will not commit idolatry with him. Here in Matthew 13, Jesus says, 
the God of gods, the King of kings, the revealer of secrets, will cast those idolaters who do not worship him into the burning fiery furnace at the end of the age. And so that background of Daniel is there behind what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 13. So there are many, many allusions like that to the Old Testament where Old Testament stories are connected to the New Testament. Another thing that we see which is a little less specific is the New Testament authors picking up on concepts and ideas from the Old Testament and using that to shape their writing in the New Testament. This is not a specific text they have in mind, but a theme, such as the idea of creation or exodus or exile or a covenant. And so we can see that as, as we look through the Gospel of Matthew, which we'll do next week, we'll see that one of the major themes of the Gospel of Matthew is this idea of the kingdom. And he's getting that theme from the Old Testament. The Gospel of Mark picks up more on the theme of the exodus and relates that to the life and ministry of Christ. And so we'll see them pick up on just, just these big ideas and themes from the Old Testament that help shape their thinking. So then the question becomes, well, how do we uh, interpret the New Testament's use of the Old Testament in all of these ways? Well, first of all, we have some things that are direct fulfillment of Old Testament texts. And so in Matthew, at the beginning of his gospel, uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. The wise men have come from the east to find the newborn king. They have gone to Herod. Uh, they have asked where they might find him. And so he gathers the chief priests and the scribes together to ask where this Messiah, this king, should be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. So that's a, a direct quote from Micah chapter 5 verse 2. And we are seeing that prophecy of Micah directly fulfilled. Plain and simple. He prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Christ is born in Bethlehem. So that Old Testament prophecy has been directly fulfilled. Uh, we see something similar near the beginning of Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, Jesus uh, is begun his public ministry. Uh, and so it says in verse 16, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So he quotes this Old Testament text and he says, It's being fulfilled right now. And there's a literal fulfillment of that text. 
Jesus did preach the gospel to the poor. He did heal people. He did give sight to the blind. And so there's a direct fulfillment of that Old Testament text. So that is one way in which we can see the New Testament authors use the Old Testament. They quote it to say that text has literally been fulfilled right now. A second way that we see them using it is a way that we've been discussing a lot on Sunday mornings going through Genesis, and that is uh, the, the, the types and the anti-types. And so they see the types in the Old Testament, the fulfillment, and the anti-type in Christ. G.K. Beale writes concerning typology, he says that it is the study of analogical correspondences among persons, events, institutions, and other things within the historical framework of God's special revelation that are prophetic in nature. And so the point is, they're actual, real, historic events, people, or places in the Old Testament, but they are prophetic in nature because they anticipate something greater coming. So just like Noah uh, is sort of a new Adam, there's a new creation, and yet Noah fails. And so there's still an anticipation left there that there is to be a son of Adam and Eve who will fulfill the promises. Right? They, they were given a promise. Your offspring will crush the head of the serpent. He will set this wrong right. He will redeem humanity. They had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain murders Abel. Obviously, Cain and Abel, neither one, were the promised seed. Then they have another son, Seth, who is the appointed seed to take Abel's place, and yet Seth dies too. He's not the promised Messiah. And so we see some types, but there's an anticipation that we're left hanging because David comes, he's the great king in the, in the promised line, and yet he has his faults, and he dies and is buried, Peter tells us in his sermon at Pentecost. And so there's still, we're left with that anticipation. And so that's, that is one of the primary aspects of a type is that there's that prophetic anticipation that it will be fulfilled by someone yet to come. And so the New Testament authors uh, use that a lot. And so we can see an example of that. Uh, if we look at John chapter 19, we've seen many examples from the book of Genesis as we've been going through, but um, John chapter 19 Verse 33, beginning in verse 33. Um, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has, been has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Well, that first text, none of his bones shall be broken, is actually from Exodus, and it's talking about the Passover lamb. So, the Passover lamb is a type. Christ is the anti-type. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so uh, there's this type, anti-type fulfillment, this anticipation there awaiting the Messiah, the one who is the actual Lamb of God. So we see that all through uh, the Old Testament uh, with various people. David is the great king, and yet Christ is the king of kings. That 
type, anti-type uh, fulfillment. The, the New Testament authors use the Old Testament in that way quite a bit. Another uh, way that we see them using it is by, by way of comparison and contrast, uh, where they, they look at a broad universal principle uh, from the Old Testament, but not one that necessarily has prophetic anticipation. It's just a principle from the Old Testament that they then compare to something uh, in the New Testament. For instance, if we look at the book of Revelation, John does this a lot in the book of Revelation. But if we look at the book of Revelation, chapter 2, uh, these are the letters to the seven churches. And if we look at beginning in verse 18, the letter to the church in Thyatira, Jesus says this to the church there, Revelation 2.18, To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent for her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Now, Jezebel's story is told in 1 Kings 16. Obviously, this is not the historical Jezebel of 1 Kings 16. What Christ is doing is he is using the story of Jezebel, and that there's a principle there that she was an adulterous, idolatrous woman who seduced the children of God into engaging in idolatry with her. And so he tells this church in Thyatira that they have false teachers among them who are doing the same thing. They are leading you into pagan idolatry, and that's a problem. They're like Jezebel. My mother did this when she told us boys not to act like Philistines. This is, this is what the New Testament authors are doing at times. They're just taking an example from the Old Testament and comparing or contrasting it with something in the New Testament. Another way that they use the Old Testament uh, is, and the term is symbolic, but don't let that trip you up. What they're doing is comparing two things uh, but they're doing it, this is specifically, in a way that the Old Testament has already done it. So, for instance, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of four beasts that represent four kingdoms of this world which persecute God's people. Well, when we get to Revelation 13, John sees a vision of a beast, but John only sees one beast. Revelation 13, beginning in verse 1, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So what John has done is he's got all four of Daniel's beasts combined into one. So... The Old Testament has already used this symbolism of these beasts representing kingdoms of the earth who are tyrannical, who oppress God's people. John is simply picking up on that idea, that symbolism, that a beast 
represents kingdoms of the world that persecute God's people. And he's saying this is the big one because it's like all of Daniel's mashed up into one. So he's using a symbol that was already established in the Old Testament, but using it now in the New Testament. So, now I want to... I don't have much time here. We can do this. I just want to briefly introduce the four Gospels, because next week we're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew, and I just want to set a little bit of groundwork. What is the Gospel? Good news. Good news about what? Good news about Christ. Good news about salvation in him. Right? So, uh, when we turn to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us there, this is a passage that we're familiar with, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel proper is the good news about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the forgiveness of sins that we have in him, right? But what is a gospel when we talk about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? They're concerned with more than just the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They're concerned with his birth, with his life, his ministry. So they are a record of the good news of Jesus Christ, but they're a little broader in scope than what we mean by the gospel when we speak of the gospel proper. So one of the things that we need to understand is the difference between the gospel proper and the implications of the gospel, uh, such as our obedience uh, to Christ, such as the idea that we are a kingdom of priests or a new creation in him. Those are implications of the gospel. They're not the gospel itself. But when we begin to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we call them the four gospels, what, we're, what we mean is these are the story of Christ, the good news of Jesus, that he came and lived a perfect life, sinless, as Adam failed to do, as Noah failed to do, as David failed to do. Jesus did it. He fulfilled all of those promises and prophecies from the Old Testament, and then we see his death, burial, and resurrection. But what we need to keep in mind is that we need to read texts in the scripture as the sort of genre that they are. So when we uh, sit down to read the Lord of the Rings, we understand we're reading fiction, right? There's a bit of a nonverbal contract between us and J.R.R. Tolkien to, real, to know that we know we're reading something he wrote that is fictional. We're not supposed to read it and think it's an actual history, although he presents it that way in the book. But we know what genre we're reading. It's fiction. When we read the New Testament, we need to know what genre we're reading. Paul's letters are drastically different from the Gospels. The Gospels are narrative. They are biographies. Paul's letters are not biographies. Paul's epistles to the churches are largely instructive, corrective, it's a different genre. It needs to be read differently. So as we approach the Gospels, we need to understand we're reading a biography, which means that we are reading first-hand eyewitness accounts. So there should be no doubt in our mind as we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that what we are reading is true, that these things happened, that Jesus said these things. There has been a large push in modern recent history to rediscover 
what they call the historical Jesus. And they say that uh, the early church, even the apostles themselves, built up a mythology around Jesus and, and wrote these things in order to make him larger than life. And so they want to cut away all the mythology and get to who Jesus really was. And what I'm telling you is who Jesus really was is right here in the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are biographies written by eyewitnesses to the events. They are true. They are God's word, inspired to be written in this way, and so we should read them as such. We should also understand they're biographies of Jesus, and so everything in there is meant to teach us about him. So when we read the account of Jesus calming the storm, as the, as the apostles are on the ship with him and there's a massive storm out there, the point is not the apostles' reaction to the storm or their lack of faith. The point is, what does it teach us about Jesus as the one who can calm the storm, as the one who has victory over the elements and over the waters? It's about Christ. He's the central character. And so that's how we need to read the Gospels. Uh, secondly, uh, we have to understand as we read them, there are four Gospels, and yet they're all different. Why do we need four? Well, the first three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, are what we call the synoptic Gospels. Uh, synoptic is simply a fancy word that means seeing together. It means they all kind of see things the same way. Uh, they're presenting many of the same uh, historical events uh, from slightly different perspectives, but they're in agreement on how they see these things. John is quite a bit different. He presents a lot of material to us that's not found in the synoptic gospels. His approach to it is entirely different. Uh, there's a lot more dialogue, Jesus teaching in the gospel of John. Uh, it's much more uh, philosophical in his approach to things. So we need to understand those differences as we read them. There are arguments among scholars over in what order the gospels were written. Uh, I don't know how to answer that other than to say the early church believed Matthew was written first, so I'm going to go with that. That we're just going to start with Matthew and say Matthew wrote his gospel, and then Mark, and then Luke, and then John. That's what the early church believed about these things. And so we will take them in that order, and we will not uh, go down any philosophical paths about unknown sources that we don't have that somebody was copying from. These men were inspired to write these Matthew and John particularly were eyewitnesses. Luke and Mark both had access to eyewitnesses as they wrote their accounts. And so we will take them for what they are as biographies of Christ. And next week, we will jump into the Gospel of Matthew and see what we can learn there. Let's close in prayer.